For this commandment which I command you today is not too mysterious for you, nor is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, Who will ascend into heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? Nor is it beyond the sea that you should say, Who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that you may do it. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil, in that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways and to keep his commandments, his statutes, and his judgments, that you may live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land which you go to possess. But if your heart turns away so that you do not hear and are drawn away and the worship of other gods and serve and worship other gods and serve them, I announce to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not prolong your days in the land which you cross over the Jordan to go in and possess. I call heaven and earth as witnesses against against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that both you and your descendants may live, that you may love the Lord your God, that you may obey his voice, and that you may cling to him, for he is your life and the length of your days and that you may dwell in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give them. And thus far, the reading of God's word and all God's people said. Amen. Amen. Sometimes I think we make the Bible more difficult than it is. Preachers and teachers can inadvertently create the impression that only certain kinds of people can really understand the Bible. It's only for those, perhaps, who are into that sort of thing, you know, Bible nerds, or it's just for the gifted and talented, or for scholars and teachers, or those who've been to seminary, or for those who have discovered the secret code. They can amaze you with all the things that they can find that you can't find in the Bible. And as a result, there is a real danger that we end up laying our Bibles down and just leaving it to the experts to tell us what it says. This can be very dangerous. Yes, there are difficult things in the Bible. The Apostle Peter speaks of the Apostle Paul's writings as consisting of, quote, some things hard to understand which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction as they do also the rest of the scriptures. And, of course, we do need pastors and teachers to instruct us in many aspects of the scriptures. Timothy, for example, had his own grandmother and mother teach him the Bible. Philip instructed the Ethiopian eunuch. And Jesus gave the church pastors and teachers to instruct us in his word so that we would grow up into all aspects into him who is the head. Nevertheless, there are also many important things in the Bible that are easy for us to know and to do. Even the learned Sadducees could miss the obvious teaching of the Bible, and Jesus answered them and said, You are mistaken not knowing the scriptures, nor the power of God. Of course, we must all go to the Bible to be instructed so that we have the truth about God, about ourselves, about sin, about redemption, about the world. 
And we will find, really, that the problem is usually not so much uh, God or his laws, but rather the estranged human heart that make things so difficult for us. Deuteronomy, which is the second law, second giving of the law, wherein God reminds the second generation of Israelites who had been freed from slavery in Egypt of his commandments as they prepared to enter the promised land. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, the Lord lays out two simple principles, which are these. If you believe and obey him, if you believe, that's faith, and obey him, that's the evidence of faith, you'll be blessed. If you don't believe him and you don't obey him, you will be cursed. So faith versus unbelief, along with obedience and disobedience, lead to either, we would say, happiness or misery. It is the faith part uh, of this that leads us to be right with God. That is how we are justified before God. We believe him. We trust him. And the evidence of that faith is obedience because faith without works is dead. It's really not that complicated. Jesus said, if you love me, if I ask, how many of you love Jesus? Then he says, if you love me, keep my commandments. Oh, that's the evidence. That's the proof, right? And so, in these chapters, he's speaking to the nation of Israel, which is, of course, made up of individual Israelites. So these things we're going to see apply to individuals, but they also apply to entire societies or nations. They apply also to you and to us. We see examples of this in our own nation, and we see examples of this in the lives of churches and families and in individuals, and perhaps you'll also see examples of these principles playing out in your own life and in your own marriage or in your own family. But first I want to address some misconceptions about law. There's a lot of misunderstanding about the place of law in the life of the Christian. Sometimes people have imagined God in ways that don't match the way he is actually described in the Bible. There's a false view of God, especially this idea that there's a God of the Old Testament, that he is harsh and stern, he's an intolerant killjoy who is constantly watching out for the violations of his commandments. Some think that God's only real pleasure comes in punishing people for the slightest violations of his rules, but this clearly leaves off what we see over and over in the Bible, and that is the long-suffering mercy and grace of God. Some folks not only have misconceptions about God, but therefore they also have misconceptions about his law, which is just his word. They see the law of God as a harsh set of rules that just restrict and limit our freedom. Law and grace... Uh, excuse me, uh, many think that uh, law and grace are opposites. But they're not opposites. What is the opposite of law? Lawlessness. Law and grace work together. 
We need both of them. Now, the misuse of the law, to try to make law do what grace does, that's what's being condemned in the New Testament. Don't try to get the law to make you right with God. That won't work. It can't work. It never has worked. Law and grace work together. And so, in Deuteronomy 30, 30 paints a very different picture of God and his law. This text tells us that God has given his law to his people to bless them with abundant life. He wants us to prosper. I'm not talking about getting rich here, but prosper in the broadest and most important sense of that word. Moreover, he tells us that his rules for life are not that difficult. In fact... In 1 John, in the the epistle of 1 John, chapter 5, verse 3, puts it this way. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. They're not that difficult. They're actually quite simple, straightforward. Law is foundational to any society. We might ask the question, what would you do, have to do first if you undertook to organize a new club? Even among children, the answer is obvious. We're going to need to set up some rules. So it's, a, it's so essential and so elementary that we, we really uh, we say it almost without thinking. It's the rules or the laws that mark out the structure or the skeleton of any society of people. Lawless families and societies are not happy places. When everybody does what they want to do when they want to do it, it is misery. It is chaos. The law instructs us in love. The law is all about love. How to love God. How to love our neighbor. Even when we don't feel like it. Even when we don't want to. Love is about self-sacrifice for the sake of others. Now, there are two kinds of laws, and here's an adaptation of Dorothy Sayers' argument, uh, adapted it for American audience, from her book, The Mind of the Maker, where she identifies two basic kinds of laws. There is the law of the stop sign, and there is the law of fire, When a city notices the danger of a high-traffic intersection, the city council could vote to put up a new stop sign or authorize whatever, uh, whoever they want to, to make those decisions. So the city decides where to put the sign, uh, whether it's a two-way or a four-way intersection, and the amount of the fine for violating that law, that ordinance. There's something arbitrary about the sign, If the city tries the new sign for a while but receives too many complaints, they could decide to just take the sign down or adjust the fines. If you drive through a stop sign at 2 a.m., the police officer on duty may decide to let you go without stopping you since no harm was done. Humans create stop sign laws regularly for many reasons. Parents set curfews. Employers set starting times for their employees. Our world is filled with these kinds of laws or rules, and they can be negotiated and can be changed. And if we don't like the way a stop sign, the way a stop sign law works, we may feel 
sometimes even entitled to ignore it because we don't like it. Sayers then points out that the other kind of law is the law of fire. If you stick your hand into a pile of burning leaves, you'll be burned. You can appeal to the city council, but your hand will still be burned. Your parents could agree that it would be much more convenient if fire would no longer burn, but they can't change that law. The law of fire is built into the created order, and there is nothing we can do to change it. Fire laws are not created by humans. They are created by God and discovered by us, sometimes the hard way. Isaac Newton did not invent the law of gravity, but he did recognize that gravity is part of the way that God made the world. And when we try to rationalize that we don't have to follow the fire laws, we end up paying a price. If I stick my hand in the fire, I will get burned. And if I step off the roof of my house, I will fall to the ground, the law of gravity. And these laws can't be changed. And if we try to break them, we will discover that we break ourselves. God's moral laws are much more like fire laws. When we obey them, health, prosperity, and life follow. And when we violate them, pain, misery, and death follow. It turns out that the law of God is given to us because he loves us and wants us to know the freedom that comes with faith and obedience. When is a train most free? On the tracks or off the tracks? I don't like those tracks. I think I'll just go at my... Go go on my own. How how far is that going to go? It's an immediate end to freedom. After God plainly lays out the promised blessings and curses of covenant keeping and covenant breaking, he then in chapter 29 renews covenant with his previously disobedient people. Chapter 30 summarizes what it takes to receive the blessings of this covenant relationship that we have with God and what will happen if we choose to disregard his law and break that covenant. So I want us to just look at three sections of this text here. Verses 11 through 14 make the point that God's commandments are understandable and manageable. Verses 11 through 14. For the commandment which I command you today is not too mysterious for you, nor is it far off. It's not in heaven that you would say, who will ascend into heaven for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it? Nor is it beyond the sea that you would say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that you may do it. Moses set before the people life and blessing. In other words, he says that faith and obedience are going to lead to our well-being Deuteronomy 30 makes it clear that the standards of God that he has set are not some ideals that are so lofty that nobody can attain them. They are reasonable and they make sense. R.J. Rushdoony comments, he says, The covenant people are not being asked to do anything difficult. They are not asked to search the heavens physically or intellectually. God's law word has been revealed. 
It is as near as hearing and seeing, and it is plainer because it is written in every atom of their being, so that it is in their mouth and heart. The law of God is a more constituent part of my being than I am, or my personality. Therefore, when I depart from God's word, I choose death. The law is inseparable from life because God's law is the way for the life of grace. Moses declares that to believe and obey God is life. Obedience to the law of God is simply living. Moses says, in effect, believing and obeying God's word is not difficult, so there are no excuses. It's not hard to understand. It's not above your head. You don't need a messenger from heaven. You don't have to go very far to find it. You don't need a degree in philosophy. Uh, You know, Rudyard Kipling, who was a contemporary with G.K. Chesterton, Kipling believed you had to go travel the world in order to understand and appreciate the world. And Chesterton believed... You could just look at the things in front of you. He said you could just look at the things that are in your pocket if you would just see. You don't have to go far. You don't have to travel the world. He understood that it was right in front of you. This, Doing this, Moses says, is not too expensive. You don't need to go to a psychologist. You can just open your Bible. The word is near you, verse 14. It's even written in a book. And in our case, it's written in a book in our language. You can read it. You can hear it. You can talk about it. Even children can do this. And this is not a cryptic puzzle. In fact, it's written also in your heart. It's interesting. Romans Romans 2.15 says that even those... The Gentiles who don't have Bibles, who don't have the written word, uh, Romans 2.15 says that they do have the work of the law written in their hearts. Well, that Romans 3, 1 through 12, Paul asks, what advantage then has the Jew, and we could say, or the Christian, or what is the profit of circumcision or baptism? And what does Paul say? Much in every way. Because to you were committed the oracles of God, the word of God. You got a tremendous advantage. You have it right here in writing. The contrast in this text in Deuteronomy 30 is between the div- whether there's divine concealment and that which is humanly remote or distant, that is belonging to the other side or is it some off in some other world? No. You've been given everything you need. Now in Romans chapter chapter 10, verses 6 through 9, the apostle cites this very text from Deuteronomy 30. So we get a divinely inspired commentary, if you will, on this text. And here's what he says. But the righteousness of faith, which we'd say justification by faith, speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down from above, or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead, but what does it say? And here's where he quotes, The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that is, the word of faith which we preach, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus 
and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's life, right? So the apostle not only applies the words of Moses here, but he expands on them. He gives them their full and true interpretation. However near the law might have been to man before, and it was, the incarnate word, Jesus has Jesus himself, has now come. You don't have to go up to heaven because the Messiah has already come down to you. And you don't have to go down into the abyss because the Messiah has already been raised from the dead. And if you believe this and confess this, you'll be on the right path. You will be saved. You will have life. Verses 15 through 16 from Deuteronomy 30, following God's commandments, brings life. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil, in that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to keep his commandments, his statutes, and his judgments, that you may live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land which you go to possess. The theme of this text is stated succinctly in verses 15 and 16, where God explains that he is making a clear distinction between the path of death and the path of life and the path of prosperity. There's a clear and unambiguous choice. Do you really want life and good? Then believe and obey. Do you want to avoid death and misery? Then you know what to do and you know what not to do. The blessings and curses of the covenant are simple. Love God and keep his commandments. Our problem is not a lack of knowledge. That's what the text is telling us. Now, some of you have been in church all your life. You know what to do. You just don't do it. In your marriages or with your children or in your business, in other ways. Do you really not know how to love, how to honor, how to respect one another? By the way, if you're unhappy, according to this text, the problem is most likely your heart. This theme is again echoed in Paul's letter to the Romans in chapter 2, verses 7 through 9. Eternal life, you want that? Eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good Seek for glory, honor, and immortality. But to those who are self-seeking, I'll do it my way, not your way, God. And do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also the Greek. So this is not just some Old Testament thing here. Remember, the whole Bible is one book, and Paul is putting an exclamation point on Deuteronomy 30 here. Commentator Matthew Henry says, Those who come short of life and happiness must thank themselves. They would have had it if they had chosen it when it was put to their choice 
but they die because they will die. That is, because they do not like life, do not like the life promised upon the terms promised. I want life, but I want it on my terms. I want to do it my way. That started in the garden, and that's still our problem, right? Then verses 17 through 20. But if your heart turns away so that you do not hear and are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I announce to you today, this is God speaking, I announce to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not prolong your days in the land which you cross over the Jordan to go in and possess. I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that both you and your descendants may live. That you may love the Lord your God, that you may obey his voice, that you may cling to him, for he is your life and the length of your days and that you may dwell in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give them. Unbelief and disobedience lead us to being drawn to follow other gods, and idolatry comes in endless forms. While obedience brings prosperity, disobedience, specifically by worshiping other gods, brings consequences of a relatively short time, he says, in the promised land. You may be having a good day today, but if you keep doing what you're doing, it is not going to last. God pleads with his people to choose life, which means a long time of prosperity in their new home by loving God and holding on to him. By the way, Israel is going to choose disobedience again and wind up being exiled from the promised land. And they're going to need a Savior to rescue them and give them new hearts. Moreover, this promise is multi-generational. I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that both you and your descendants may live. Again, Rush Dooney comments, When Moses says of the Lord, He is thy life and the length of thy days, he is stating the same thing that our Lord declares in John 11:25 and 26 of himself. I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. The relationship between these two statements has long been recognized. We've been given the owner's manual. God's law, or God's word, isn't given to us to make our lives difficult, quite the opposite. Rather, it's the owner's manual to teach us how to live our lives in this world with success. Joshua 1.8, this book of the law, shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein, then thou shalt make thy way prosperous. Then thou shalt have good success. Think about that owner's manual in the glove compartment of your car. It gives you operating and maintenance instructions for your vehicle. Now you can choose to neglect changing the oil and other regular maintenance and if you do, Ronnie Coates and Jeremy Terrell are not going to hunt you down and fine you 
for inappropriate vehicle maintenance. However, if you keep neglecting the routine care of your car, don't be surprised with poor performance breakdowns as well as a shorter lifespan for the car. Now, some of you in here will remember this. There were um, there was the old Fram oil filter commercials from the 1970s where the auto mechanic uttered the phrase, you can pay me now or you can pay me later. The mechanic was implying that the customer could make a small investment in maintaining their car today with a low-cost investment in a Fram oil filter or they could pay the mechanic a lot more money at a later point to fix the car. Now, quickly, a few implications and applications. The idea that God's commandments are a blueprint for life is something we intuitively understand and we recognize it in the world around us. If we, dis- if we disregard the law of gravity, there will be consequences, sometimes fatal consequences. And this is true of all God's moral law as well. Thus, the Rom- in Romans chapter 1, we read, even though the law of God was in their hearts and even though they knew better, many people exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And as a result, we read, God gave them up to uncleanness and the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was their due. In an article by Pastor Bill uh, uh, Sitzma, he made some good points about how blessings and curses work. And uh, I am going to just skim this a bit and just mention one as an example. Polygamy. Abraham, Jacob, and David were considered heroes of the faith, in Hebrews 11, and yet they all married multiple wives. And we don't read specifically about God condemning the practice in the lives of these men. Nevertheless, we do read about the results. God used Abraham to bless the world, but the relationship between Hagar and Sarah brought heartache to his household and generations of negative fallout to this day. Jacob married Rachel and Leah, but the tension between those two sisters brought friction that was noticeable for generations. Even though David was a man after God's heart, his pursuit of multiple women brought strife that could be seen in the lives of his children. Living contrary to God's law brings misery. The text of Deuteronomy 30 closes with the encouragement to choose life. Remember, following God's commandments are not intended simply to be restrictions, but are primarily instructions for thriving. This is why Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. When we believe and obey God's law, we find joy and life. I want to close with just a couple of observations about a cultural application of this. Just a couple of quotes here. How this applies to our nation, which is in a mess, which is dying. My mentor, Dr. Greg Bonson, wrote this. Christ brought no new program for social political affairs because the Old Testament pattern for social affairs as found in God's holy law was already sufficient and grandly beneficial 
if only followed. Note its perfections and note its promises. And he gives scripture references. Nothing more was needed here as far as the plan was concerned. Instead, men desperately need remission from their sins against that perfect order, as well as the subsequent power of obedience. Christ need not bring a political kingdom, yet mankind superabounds in need for Christ's dominion in forgiveness and power. Before the Old Testament laws could be obeyed in fact, and the obligation, uh, the obligation always being there to comply, one must enter the kingdom of Christ by means of repentance and faith, and then the influence of kingdom obedience, kingdom obedience can be felt in all areas of life, even the state. Rush Dooney draws this out. Moses is declaring to Israel that their future is determined by their faith, by either faith in God or faith in idols, false gods. The way of the former led to blessing. The latter could only result in curse. But faith is not empty belief. Faith has consequences in obedience, either to the law of God or to the law of idols. You're going to serve somebody. The issue, as declared by Moses, is faith and obedience of faith. The consequences, again, either blessings or curses. It's true that we are surrounded by mystery and ultimate knowledge is beyond our grasp. Yet we can have life by faith and by loyal obedience to God, God's covenant, even though our knowledge is limited and finite. We don't have to wait to comprehend the universe in order to obtain the promised salvation. It is freely offered in Jesus Christ right now. Biblical faith is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek Scripture is uh, clear throughout that sin is death. Anything which harms or destroys our political, church, or family life is a violation of God's law. The commandment is emphatic. Therefore, choose life. To avoid social suicide, we must believe and obey all of God's word. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your law, which was clearly given to us because you love us and desire good for us. Thank you for the gospel, which has resurrected us from our trespasses and sins and given us new hearts, so that your word is indeed very near to us in our mouths and in our hearts, so that we may do it. Grant us this morning, wherever it is needed, the grace of true repentance and lift up our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we prepare to come to the table, I want to read from Deuteronomy 4, 7 through 10. For what great nation is there that has God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us? For whatever reason, we may call upon him. And what great nation is there that has such statutes and righteous judgments as are in all this law which I set before you this day? Only take heed to yourself and diligently keep yourself lest you forget the things your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life, and teach them to your children and your grandchildren, 
especially concerning the day you stood before the Lord your God in Horeb, when the Lord said to me, Gather the people to me, and I will let them hear my words, that they may learn to fear me all the days they live on the earth, and that they may teach their children. You and I, this text tells us, can call on him for any reason. We have eternal truth. We have his law. We have his judgments. And so I want to ask you this morning as we come to the table, do you have some area of your life where you are choosing not to listen to God? Some sin that you have not and are not dealing with. This morning, I urge you to go to Christ for cleansing and then to earnestly seek God's word for instruction and direction. It's in there. It's not that difficult to believe and obey because God has done a work in your heart by the power of the Holy Spirit to enable you to gain the victory and to prosper. And then teach those things to your children. Father, in gratitude for your work of salvation, we commit ourselves to serve you with gladness in this new week, to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with you, proclaiming the good news of your salvation from day to day, declaring your glory among the nations and your wonders among all peoples. For you, O Lord, are great and greatly to be praised. You are to be feared above all gods. Help us now to walk in the good works that you have prepared for us in Christ, Uh, Bless now our extended time of feasting and celebration with a meal and give us your rest and joy. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Amen. Amen.